and welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg. And on today's episode, we talk big tech and whether or not government regulation is the answer. This is becoming an increasingly important topic as the desire to gain information that's unbiased and unfiltered is seemingly difficult and confusing. We struggle with knowing who and what to believe and where to turn for a truth. The result has been a declining faith in institutions and a call to regulate big tech. So where does that leave conservatives, especially when we are often the first to be censored? Well, Brett Jacobson is here to shed some light on a complex issue. Brett Jacobson is co-founder and partner at Red Edge, a leading digital advocacy agency in Washington, DC. Under Brett's leadership, Red Edge helps a diverse roster of clients cut through an increasingly noisy and disjointed digital landscape to bring their message to the public. Brett has been covered by the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Associated Press, and more. In addition, Brett has been named by Campaigns and Elections Magazine as a disruptor and a rising star, and it is a pleasure to have him on the program today. Brett, thank you so much for joining She Thinks. Thank you, Beverly. Glad to be with you. So there's a lot I want to delve into on this issue, but I just want to start with the problem, things that conservatives tend to be concerned about, and that is censorship. We're seeing that in many different ways, whether it's with politicians on Twitter, we're seeing Joe Rogan, the popular podcaster when it comes to YouTube and even Twitter being censored, even Apple Podcasts being censored. There's also Rand Paul, who has said that he is leaving Twitter altogether. So there are a lot of people out there, whether they're considered conservatives or just not in the mainstream thought with everything, who are saying that they are being censored. Do you see this as a problem within big tech? I certainly think it's a problem anytime you have that many users of your own platform um, concerned that they are being uh, selected for essentially being deplatformed. So I think it's a problem, at least in perception, whether it is in fact or not. Um, and I think that for the platforms, I think they've done probably a very poor job of explaining their thought processes and how they're making decisions. And I think they probably got themselves a little bit into a pickle when they decided that they should be the arbiters of truth. And I think, um, you know, you saw Jack Dorsey the CEO, the former CEO of Twitter, um, argue that that is not their role to be arbiters of truth. And I think you see what happens when they um, started down a path that they really technologically and morally couldn't sustain. Um, and so I think uh, conservatives in particular have a reason to be concerned. But then I think the real question is, um, you know, what are the solutions to that? And I'm concerned that uh, some conservatives are leaning toward government solutions when you know history has taught us that that is about the worst way that you could go. And I, what I find fascinating about the government needs to break up big tech uh, angle is that it seems that this is the only thing that Republicans and Democrats can agree on, or at least many of them, that it seems like the very progressive wing wants there to be regulation in big tech and the very um, conservative or very far right side of Republicans wants want there to be regulation of big tech. Why do we see these two entities, these two natural enemies coming together on this one issue? Uh, yeah, I think um, conservatives should take a moment and really think about how much do they really want to be with Elizabeth Warren in a foxhole. 
uh, and uh, what that's going to get them long term. Uh, and so, like, you know, what the very, very far left and the very, very far right have in common is that they're willing to use government to take short term control over other people's speech. Uh, and for the you know 90 percent of us, you know, on on the rest of the political spectrum, we know that uh, the government controlling our speech is um, fundamentally why we left the British Empire uh, and uh, why we started the greatest country on Earth. And so it's um, it's puzzling that people would take a short term um, vision and just sort of introduce government into these communications platforms that have been used so productively to advance um, conversations and commerce. And so this leads to really what is a solution to this problem. If somebody is kicked off Twitter, what do they do? If somebody is being censored or information is being censored on Facebook, what do we do about that? Now, there is the claim from those who want to break up big tech. They claim that these are monopolies, that they're too big, that other messages can't get through. What do you make to the claim that these are monopolies and therefore there is a reason for government intervention? And would you agree if these were monopolies, the government would have a role in getting involved? I think if uh, if there was an actual monopoly, then the government might have a standing to, to take action. But you have uh, people complaining on Twitter about being treated poorly on YouTube. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, the idea that there aren't uh, enough places to, to speak, it doesn't really uh, hold water. Um, but just the speed of change is itself an argument against very old people in D.C. trying to understand and then regulate uh, these incredibly fast moving platforms. And I think, you know, when people think big, they might think Facebook or they might think Google, but they might not realize that within the last several weeks, um, you know, Chinese, you know, communist uh, TikTok has basically rocketed past those uh, for a lot of user demographics in terms of um, who's using them, how much time they're spending on them. So the market changes extremely quickly. And what we don't need is the government hammering American companies while, you know, communist party aligned uh TikTok apps are, are going um, and taking a lot of attention and eyeballs. And something that we do often hear people say who share your perspective on how we should handle big tech and the problems that we see is we say that these individual companies, take Twitter, for instance, have every right to set up the rules that they want for their own business. Then you have those who say, well, they need to be treated like a traditional media company, like a publisher, so there must be regulation. For those who are on that side that private companies can determine what they want to do, how do you see some of the decisions of these companies playing out in real time? Does the market actually punish them for bad decisions? I know we're going to be seeing this, whether or not this happens with the new CEO of Twitter, who is instituting more rules, it seems, with Twitter than Jack Dorsey did. But how do you see that when there is a suppression of speech by these CEOs, do you see that the free market does react positively and people go elsewhere, they take their business away? We have seen a number of new platforms emerge in the last several months. I think Rumble, the video uh, challenger to YouTube, is the most interesting right now. Uh, Dan Bongino and a number of other individuals have poured a lot of sweat and uh, resources into building something new and interesting. Uh, Senator Rand Paul just said that he's going to be done with YouTube in favor of Rumble for the most part. Um, and there's you know fairly significant market valuations on Rumble. Uh, former President Trump has uh, like aligned with a SPAC to, to line up some money 
pretty sizable money. So um, there is, there are resources, there are technology solutions for people who want to leave the, the massive platforms for more specific places to talk about politics. And I think a good metaphor is how we think about different retail stores. So I think you're going to start seeing users who want to talk about politics, maybe go to some very specific uh, political places um, in the same way that you might go to Bed Bath & Beyond for sheets, you might go to Home Depot for lights. Um, so I think becoming more sophisticated, using different platforms for different needs, I think is going to be something that we'll see going forward. Well, I know a competitor to Twitter that seems to be gaining some traction is Getter. You had Joe Rogan join it. You have different politicians joining it, um, getting off of Twitter altogether. So we'll see what happens with that startup company. And, and just kind of on that, I've wondered if with this topic of Section 230 being discussed and still thrown around and talked a lot, if you could break down for us, when people talk about Section 230, what exactly is the debate about? Um. The debate's pretty confused, and I think it's one of those uh, political totems. <clears throat> excuse me, that um, that the people use as a stand-in uh, phrase for just trying to rein in something that they think is out of control. Uh, but fundamentally, what the argument over Section 230 legally is is really about um, whether or not we continue to put a barrier in the way of uh, rapacious trial sharks who would sue every website ten times a day for every comment that is posted on a website. Um, the, the law was intended to basically deal with, uh, trial attorneys and their, uh, bad habits. It has very little to do with actual free speech rights, which are still covered by the first amendment. Um, and so you have, you know, uh, the far left and some on the far right trying to use it as a way, basically as a cudgel, um, to knock around, uh, large platforms that they don't like, uh, my hope for conservatives is that they remember the many years and many millions of dollars they spent battling um, trial sharks and uh, winning the tort reform war uh, for a while and not just sort of give it back to them so easily. And I want to move on to just conservatives and the messaging. The reason, of course, that conservatives do get frustrated with some of these big tech arms is that they feel that the conservative message can't get out there. I think even on the issue of COVID, it's been most interesting. Uh, people who want to share information have been censored. Of course, one of the popular uh, theories that was out there when COVID first came out that was censored quite a bit was where did COVID originate from? Was it from a lab or was it from a wet market? And, and that was censored. And so I think the question that conservatives often do have is how to fight back. You talk about these other startups and conservatives can go to other places if they're frustrated with what a big tech company may be doing. But is there anything else they can do? What is the way for them to think about the messages they want to get out there? How do conservatives fight back? Uh, that's a great question. And I think, uh, I don't have a great answer for you. I do know that, uh, interestingly, Joe Rogan has basically shot past a lot of, uh, cable news and mainstream news outlets in terms of, uh, listenership. And I think that's because he's willing to at least entertain questions that editors at CNN are not willing to entertain. Uh, and I think that's to the detriment of a lot of sort of legacy media. Um, I think figuring out credibility is probably the biggest challenge of the next two decades. Um, and how do we understand credibility? How do we ascribe it to people somewhat in real time so that as you know, these complex global challenges happen, we're able to figure out who 
we can listen to. I think, you know, an interesting look is, you know, kind of the rise and fall of Anthony Fauci and how much, um, you know, credibility he seemed to have early on. Um, and then he became, I am the science guy, uh, and, uh, which is, you know, sort of lacking the humility that we want in science. Um, and it took a long time for, um, some of the news outlets to sort of recognize some, some problems in how we were dealing with public health messaging. So I think learning together how we give people credibility um, is, is a challenge for especially young viewers uh, who are very cynical. And the reverse problem is true maybe for boomers or, or very older Americans um, who grew up in a higher trust environment and might give too much trust to new voices that uh, aren't very well established. And based on just what we see from data, where do you think the trust level is that Americans have when it comes to the legacy media? Has it diminished immensely? How far has it fallen? Uh, I think the trust has fallen a lot, but even just viewership in the last two years has fallen dramatically for uh, cable news in particular, uh, but just news in particular. I think people are a little bit burnt out. I don't feel, you know, it doesn't seem like they feel like they're um, going to get the honest story the first time. Uh, and so, you know, as trust erodes, um, as people get a little burnt out from a pandemic, uh, from pretty high octane politics, uh, it certainly seems like they are spending more of their media time on enjoyable or sort of non-challenging things. One of the things I've wondered with the rise of podcasts, of course, we are recording a podcast today, as we've seen this emergence, and of course, podcasts started before COVID. If the reason we're seeing so many people turn to podcasts, obviously, it's the lack of trust. I think that's a big factor. But I think it's a good sign that people are craving long form information, that maybe they're turning away from the soundbite culture that we've become so accustomed to in legacy media and mainstream media. And they're turning for more information. Yes, brought to you in a entertaining way that's easy to listen to. Um, I personally like the fact that you can binge episodes of your favorite podcasts when you have time. Um, but do you think that the rise of podcasts and long form media, whether through YouTube um, or through wherever people do find their podcasts, is an encouraging sign that people are turning with their feet? They're turning into a different direction instead of just flipping on the TV. I think it's an extremely positive sign because it means that they're engaging with one idea or one general aesthetic for longer periods of time. Uh, and so I think that that creates complexity of thought, which is uh, usually associated with being kinder to other people. Uh, so I think those are great things. Uh, I think it's also very healthy that uh, the podcast culture has um, evolved into this idea where you can have limited run series, uh, which is kind of the opposite of network TV, right? Like uh, Law and Order has been running for 84 years. Uh, you know, you can, you can actually just have something as long as it's relevant. And I think that is also an undervalued contribution that I'm kind of excited about. I've yet to see one episode of Law & Order. I don't know what that says about me, but I've, I've never actually ventured an episode of it. Well, we know the next podcast series is. <laughs> um, so on just the messages and getting the message out, I know that this is what you work with with Red Edge and digital advocacy. This has changed the landscape for conservatives getting their message out. This has changed the landscape specifically for politicians. I still remember when it was a big deal when President or then Barack Obama ran and he used a texting, texting to get donations and get his message out. But we've come on a long way since that campaign. How are you finding that 
Republican politicians, especially as we're using midterms, what are they turning to to get their message out? Is it social media? Is it digital advertising? Is it a combination of all of it? But are they turning away from the traditional ads that we would typically see on TV? Yeah, there's um, in, in advertising uh, on the web, there's something called banner blindness, which is the concept that uh, users are now so used to seeing websites for decades that they know exactly where the ads are and their brains sort of put, you know, <laughs> horse blinders on and just look at exactly kind of like the content that they're looking for. Uh, and what we've seen is that the very same thing has happened to the traditional 30 second TV negative where everything gets very gray. And then we have like a headline rip and then, you know, like a bad picture of somebody. Um, and, uh, you know, if you've ever been in an Ohio Ohio or Pennsylvania the last week of a, an election, you feel so sorry for those poor people because they're just <laughs> inundated for 20 hours a day on TV of negative ads. Um, and so, you know, what we're seeing is um, ads that are a lot more native to, to the platforms that they're on, you know, so uh, they, they fit in your phone well, they know what's supposed to be uh, with sound, not with sound. Um, but you also mentioned length, and that's a really interesting thing, is that if you can capture somebody's attention in the first five seconds, your ad can actually go seven or eight minutes if it's really interesting. Um, and that's a nice change because that means that you're not trying to fit every complex political issue into 30 seconds, which obviously, you know, uh, is, is not always realistic for some of the most important fights of our time. Um, so we're really excited with the continued potential for using different digital tools to reach people in ways that is actually useful to them. And that's one of the things that we focus on is trying to have compassion for the actual user um, because it's not a mom's job to, you know, stop what she's doing, tell her kids to be quiet so she can watch a really mean spirited political ad on TV. It's our job to give her useful information and tell her why it impacts her life so that she can help, you know, form rules to make her kids healthy and safe and grow. And I think it's interesting you use that word compassion. It makes me think of George W. Bush. Is this a return up to compassionate conservatism when it comes to messaging and tone? I, I certainly think that wouldn't be the worst thing. Um, you know, it, it's sort of a hobby horse theory with some of my employees um, is we talk about sort of like what is real masculinity versus fake masculinity. <laughs> and there's this kind of concept that like uh, to be a man, you know, you have to go prove it by just barking like a you know rabid dog every day. And it turns out you can actually have real thoughts and a real backbone and work really hard for a long period of time uh, on issues that you care about. Um, and so we think that if you do messaging the right way, you can actually, you know, get a convert for life as opposed to somebody who's just going to pull the lever for you one time because they're really scared about crime in their local neighborhood. And so when you talk about just being more approachable in, in the message it, itself, do you find that in working with your clients, you've had a fight against a lot of what we've seen in the past few years, um, including with President Donald Trump, and that is this very tough guy type of talk. A lot of people have said to me just in my media training over the years that they want to be trained to speak like Donald Trump because it worked for him. He did win the highest office in the world, became president of the United States. Have you found much pushback in what do you say in response to people rightly say it worked for Trump, can't it work for me? Uh, well, we don't get that a lot. We, we actually prefer to work on issues, which, you know, we've always said that uh, the, the difference between an issue and a candidate is, is that you will know where the issue is going to be in, in the morning when you wake up. Uh, and candidates are a little bit different. Um, but we do find that people think that there aren't any 
limits on tone anymore that you can always just throw bombs. Um, and that only works in extremely short timeframes and it burns people out really quickly and they tune you out pretty quickly. Um, and so finding interesting ways and educational ways and sometimes inspirational ways to talk to people is, is more helpful. And so we focus specifically on one kind of ad called, you know, halo effect, where we'll go talk to somebody who's, you know, 80 years old and they started a business 50 years ago um, in the community. And we'll talk about the challenges they face and why somebody running for, you know, Congress or Senate um, is, has actually been there to help them. Um, and so we've gone all over the country and then we test it out, you know, in the same way that we test, you know, new drugs, for, you know, for the uh, FDA. And we say, you know, does it work for uh, for these people? Does it not work for these people? And we found time and again that telling real stories of optimism and of struggle um, end up being the most effective messaging overall. And as we're looking towards the midterms, we know we're going to be getting a lot of political ads. And what I have found so interesting in, in how one should message is I do think people are more in tune to politics than ever before. People who typically weren't that involved in politics uh, care now. We saw what happened in November in Virginia, where you had the activist parent rise up. And regardless of what political party they aligned with, had a very strong opinion on education. Are you seeing that people who haven't necessarily paid much attention to policies and politics are involved and does that make a make it a necessity to message differently with that in mind it, it changes kind of your uh your strategy overall and one of the the most interesting changes that we recommend to our clients is to shift the calendar forward. You know, um, in, in the days where, uh, you know, 30 years ago, uh, lobbyists would like knock off and just leave DC for all of August. And, you know, maybe you wouldn't run TV ads until October. Um, opinions are set by then at this point, right? So like to actually educate people about a candidate or about an issue, you have to start way earlier. You have to use repetition and you have to be effective. Um, and so there's kind of like the, the old playbook is a little bit lazy, right? We're just going to buy $18 million worth of TV and like Poughkeepsie and like we'll call that good. Um, and you have to be a little bit more intentional. You have to be a little bit more nuanced in terms of um, being honest about where the audience is starting from. You can reach people and change minds um, if somebody is already disagreeing with you, if you're pretty honest with them about why they need to change their minds. Um, and so, you know, it's not always just about this sort of brutalist turnout model. Sometimes you can actually, um, you know, have a real conversations. And I think that's why we enjoy the digital side so much is that's where the conversations tend to happen. And final question for you as we wrap up, we both know, those listening know that we're in a very polarized environment. Uh, I don't think Americans as far are as far apart as often they are portrayed in the media. But yet, I think especially with COVID, whether people are vaccinated or have a vaccine, they're vaxxed or not vaxxed, there's been a lot of tension within that. When we're dealing with a polarized society, any tips that you would give on trying to help people reach across the aisle? Is this is this about just getting to the local level and neighbor getting to know neighbor again? Is, is the isolation that we've seen in the past two years been one of the reasons why we are more polarized? Uh, the isolation is a big thing, um, but it's combined with the fact that um, we're inundated with so much information and our brains are just not necessarily built for uh, discerning <laughs> with deep thought that much information. And so I would say, you know, as I get older, um, as I have kids and we're trying to talk to them about how do they work through that kind of information, sometimes it's giving people the benefit of the doubt. 
And that sounds really simple, but you know, maybe somebody disagrees with you because they have a piece of information that you don't have, or maybe they disagree with you because you have a piece of information they haven't heard yet. Um, and it isn't necessarily that they are just, you know, a walking incarnation of the devil. Uh, so, you know, starting with the idea that our fellow Americans are still decent human beings and that if we do the hard work of communicating our values to them, uh, I think is not necessarily very sexy and not necessarily very easy, but very important. And I'm hoping that we are headed in that direction, that Americans are frustrated with what's been taking place over the past few years. And like you said, be gracious to people and maybe not assess motive. Maybe having a conversation and seeing where they're really coming from. Well, Brett Jacobson with Red Edge, we so appreciate you joining us today. Thank you, Beverly. And before you go, Independent Women's Forum does want you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you and investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. Please consider making a small donation to IWF by visiting iwf.org backslash donate. That is iwf.org backslash donate. Last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. It does help. And we'd love it if you shared this episode and let your friends know where they can find more She Thinks. From all of us here at Independent Women's Forum, thanks for watching.